I think as terrible as it was, I think was also a, a preview of actually what the rest of the 2020s and, and beyond bring, which is a world where things like supply chains are actually much more vulnerable, where people start thinking in terms of not just in time, but just in case. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. All right, what's up, everyone? This is Saved Rounds. Uh, join me and my favorite technologist and Second Front compatriot, Enrique Odi, as we cut through the cacophony of the news cycle and reload your arsenal to annihilate boring defense tech takes. Let the fun begin. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Pretty excited to click into a little bit more maybe geopolitics and, and markets than normal. We've got Vance from the KKR Global Institute. So one, thank you taking some time to join us. And two, I think I've had the benefit of getting to know you and I know your background and I know what you're working on. Let's assume the average listener maybe has not had that benefit. So uh, give the people what they want. Who are you? What are you working on? What's your sort of background? Give them the story. Give the people what they want. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's going to be entirely compatible with answering that question, honestly, but I'll give it a shot first. It's, it's awesome to be on the podcast, Tyler. So thanks so much for having me on. Uh, Vance Turchuk. I work at uh, the investment firm KKR. I wear two hats at the firm. The first is that I am executive director of something called the KKR Global Institute, which was set up 10 years ago with, uh, with Dave Petraeus as our, as our chairman, myself coming in uh, with him as executive director. We've got the modest mission of helping KKR be a better investor by understanding the world better. In practice, what that means is that we work across the firm with our deal teams, with our portfolio companies, with our leadership, with our investors to help think about geopolitics and think about how geopolitics should affect how we invest and where we invest and how and where maybe we, we don't invest. And so that's hat number one. Hat number two is that I also sit on our America's private equity uh, industrials uh, industry team, uh, where I lead our coverage on aerospace uh, and defense. So I get to spend part of my, my, my time thinking about geopolitics at a global level, and then translating that hopefully on uh, collaboration partnership with, uh, with a lot of my terrific colleagues on different deal teams. And then I spend other parts of my time looking at uh, specific opportunities that we have. And generally speaking, if KKR is looking at something which touches on defense in particular and different geographies, different strategies, then I'm often fortunate enough to get, get pulled into it and offer my two cents. It's pretty, pretty interesting two hats. How does someone end up in a spot like that? Cause that would be the, the next question a listener would ask is that's an awesome job. How do you get there? Yeah. Tr tremendous luck. I would say first and foremost. So uh, if you'd asked me, yeah, at the start of my career, was I going to end up working at a, an investment firm at KKR? Uh, it was the, probably the furthest thing from, from my mind. My interest had always been in national security, geopolitics, foreign policy. 
when I was in college, I studied Russian and Russian history, Russian language. I lived in Russia when I was in college and then after I graduated from college, which immediately just shows how old I am and how long ago it was. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. I worked at a think tank. I had a terrific set of experiences at, at think tank, American Enterprise Institute. And uh, I think um, I was really fortunate in that AEI at the time, I think probably decided that I was uh, highly expendable, which I was. And so I kind of repeatedly agitated and volunteered to go to places that were, shall we say, a bit off the beaten track um, as a research assistant, researcher at 23 years old. And I, again, I think mostly I probably on the assumption that if I didn't come back, it was not going to be any great loss to AEI. Um, they, uh, they encouraged me and let me go. I and mean, so I spent a lot of my time in, in places like, uh, like Iraq and Afghanistan, Horn of Africa. And actually on one of those trips, actually first trip I, I took, uh, ever to, to Iraq, it was in Northern Iraq around Iraqi Kurdistan and places like, uh, Mosul. I had the, you know, trying to talk my way into every meeting that I, I could, and the, uh, the commander responsible for Northern Iraq at the time, this was back in 2003, December 2003, uh, was the commander of the 101st Airborne uh, named Major General Petraeus. And uh, so that's actually the first time that I got to know Dave Petraeus. Um, I subsequently went to work on Capitol Hill, worked in the Senate, was part of the small group of folks who were agitating for a, a different approach, counterinsurgency in Iraq, and then spent six years on Capitol Hill uh, from end of 2006 to the end of 2012, working for, um, for Senator Joe Lieberman. Left when uh, he uh, retired, um, moved to Asia, was a Council on Foreign Relations uh, International Affairs Fellow living in Tokyo. This was in beginning of 2013, end of 2012. I had this strange conviction that I thought future of geopolitics and national security was in Asia, and that our most important ally for the period ahead was going to be uh, Japan. And I'd spent a fair amount of time actually on the Hill working on kind of Indo-Pacific security issues. Frankly, there wasn't a ton of competition during that period uh, for those issues. And so I, I moved out there with the expectation that I was going to be traveling around the Indo-Pacific. The Washington Post editorial page very generously gave me a monthly column to write about Indo-Pacific geopolitics. And so that was going to be my life. And about a weekend, I got a phone call from uh, none other than uh, uh, Dave Petraeus saying that he was having this conversation with KKR and would I be interested in becoming part of it and seeing where it would go. And I said, yeah, that actually sounds super interesting. And, and, you know, for me, a big part of the background here was, you know, I'd spent all of my time in government and in kind of national security world in Washington. And I could see on, on so, so many occasions, whether it was with respect to defense industry, whether it was respect to emerging markets, developing countries, that the U.S. private sector had an incredibly important role to play. I knew very, very little about it. And so the opportunity to be able to, on the one hand, take what I knew about geopolitics or thought I knew about geopolitics and try to, in a collaborative way, work at a really uh, best-in-class uh, investment firm was really interesting. And I, I went in, I think, probably with the conviction that I would give it maybe two years 
And ten years, yeah, famous last words. <laughs> ten, ten years later, I discovered that there was actually a lot more stuff to do. On than my we, second year right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, a lot more things to do that were were super interesting. And you know, I, I think I just also got I began by saying I got lucky. You know, the the culture at the place that I went to work, KKR, is a really I think special one. It's full of these incredibly you know smart, capable, driven people. Um, but also really open about, okay, well, these are the things we know, and these are some of the things we don't know. It's, and an, so impre- let's, it's an impressive team. Yeah. So, I, you know, and, and as a result, I, I just, I found that I really enjoyed the interaction and the the teamwork. And remarkably enough, they have uh, kept me around, which that's probably the biggest shocker for me in the, 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 the journey of the last decade. This is where you and I are the most aligned. Every time I wake up and I haven't been bricked on like Slack. Yeah, it's really shocking. All right. Yeah, no, it's (laughs) like really, really? like I still have access to my phone. Like, that's cool. It's a gift. So, all right. Well, that's one. I thank you for sharing sort of the background because I think that is such an interesting story and puts you at this place, which is a juxtaposition of, you know, on one side, sort of that financial driven sort of investor that I think, you know, maybe sometimes gets a bad name in defense. And on the other side. You know, the day for trace of the world, that sort of long look geopolitical sort of what's that vantage point and backed by your experience, you know, one on the ground, but two as a researcher and sort of as a as a regulator and a legislator. So I guess I'll sort of open with the, the maybe billion dollar question of as you look out right now, sort of what's your kind of assessment on. I think it's easy, and I'll frame it because I think it's easy for folks to say, hey, this is like the most complex time in recent history geopolitically with what you've got going on in Ukraine, with what you've got going on in Israel, with what you've got brewing in Indo-PACOM. And that's ignoring like the whole southern half, everything south of the equator, of which there's not nothing going on. Yeah. So what's your take sort of on the the relative complexity of today? And then the follow-on to that would be, how do you then connect that complexity or lack thereof into the markets and sort of what's that so what down at that practical level? Yeah. So I don't think anyone in geopolitics has ever gotten in trouble for saying it's really complicated. <laughs> I think that that's, that's usually the default. I think that the challenge test is can you distill out of the complexity, if not simplicity, then at least what are the, the most important big ideas, takeaways, where the, the, the real, the essence of the, the trends that we're facing. So I'd say, I guess, a couple of things, right? I mean, first, the Washington cliche of great power competition, I think is, is actually correct. I mean, you know, the, you can jokingly say that probably at, at any given point, whatever the conventional wisdom in, in Washington, you know, wait five years and it's going to be repudiated. And so, you know, be skeptical when there's a, a bipartisan consensus around around anything because I you know those of us who are old enough remember when there was a bipartisan consensus about, you know fill in the blank right that inexorably the free market democracy was going to triumph and that it was the only successful model or that the uh, Middle East was the defining region for the 21st century and that the key was, democratization of the, the the greater Middle East and that American security, you can fill on the blank, yeah. you know, that we're going to reset relations with Russia. China was going to be our key strategic partner. You can go on and on and on. And so, you know, with that history in mind, okay, the current moment says great power competition, let's be skeptical. But I actually think in, in this case, 
the having been something of a critic of some of those previous points of consensus, I think in this case the the consensus is is actually correct that we are at a moment where, at least for the foreseeable future, with respect to China, with respect to to Russia, the geopolitics are going to be fundamentally competitive. That these are uh, not uh, governments that we're going to be having a collaborative, cooperative relationship with. That's point one. Two, I think that the private sector. This has really, really profound implications, right? Because the reality is that much of the global economy was built on top of these geopolitical fault lines. First and foremost, in the case of of China, and so we're now at a period where it's necessary to to adapt to this fundamental reality that. Geopolitics is playing and will play a really profound role, not just with respect to international security, but with respect to all these areas that I think you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago, five years ago, many people thought were either irrelevant to or insulated from geopolitics. Right, with respect to trade and commerce and finance and technology. Supply chains, infrastructure—all all these things that people said, "Well, you know, what does that have to do with geopolitics?" Well, I think the running turns joke out, was everyone learned what a supply chain was during COVID, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, that's exactly right. And you know, the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, I think, is as terrible as it was. I think was also a, a preview of actually what the rest of the twenty twenties and and beyond bring, which is a world where things like Supply chains are actually much more vulnerable,、um, where people start thinking in terms of not just in time but just in case. That is now the world that we we live in, and that has, I think, again, big implications for、uh, for investors. I think it has big implications for just about every company, global company in the world、um, that they're wrestling with. COVID was one major warning about this. I think Ukraine、uh, has been another. And countries that prior to February of 2022 looked at, for example, their economic dependence on cheap Russian gas, and said, "Well, you know, look, this is not an, a geopolitical thing. This is an economic thing." Discovered, well, actually, no, it is a geopolitical thing, and I think it's caused a lot of both governments and companies to now look at other areas of, let's say, asymmetric dependencies. And realize how they can be weaponized. Because one of the things that happens in great power competition, which we're seeing play out in real time, is that that things that can be weaponized will be weaponized.、Uh, so you know whether it's access or control of data,、um, supply chains, infrastructure, dual use technologies, all these things that I think in the private sector,、um, many people said, well, again, this you know this is nothing to do with. Anything related to international security, actually, it's the other way around, you know. And if in an earlier era, you know, I think if we're having this conversation 20 years ago, the common assumptions were, well, economics is going to drive geopolitics.、Yep. Well, now it actually turns out, no, that's that's the the wheel works the other way.、Yep. It's actually geopolitics which is driving economic policy making, economic、uh, decision making. That is a big deal. Now, you know, what you also say, and I'm guilty of this as、um, as anyone 
sometimes people say, well, you know, we've, we've transitioned from a period of globalization to now this, this era of, of great power competition. I, I think in terms of our perceptions, that is absolutely accurate. I think that the, the caveat to that, though, and it's an important caveat, is that I'm, I'm not sure that if you were sitting in uh, Moscow or uh, you were sitting in uh, Beijing in at least certain parts of the, uh, the PRC government, um, that was ever uh, the case. Yeah. I think that the great power competition game has actually been going on for quite some time. We just didn't know we were playing for a while. Yeah, it just was that, that we, we didn't realize that we were in that game. Yeah. Um, we thought that we were doing something else. And, and by the way, like that's also, a, if you just think historically, that, that's also something of pattern um, for Americans. Oh, yeah. What bin Laden declared war on us, I think, in 1996, it wasn't for another couple of years that we actually got around to noticing that, lo and behold, Al-Qaeda was, in fact, attacking us. I think that... After the, we missed him with a missile and sort of made him a hero. Yeah. Well, after after we did a couple of things, Tarnak, missed, yeah. missed a couple of opportunities. Yeah. So we're, we're often... Um, we're often late to the party. That being said, once we actually do wake up, we have an extraordinary ability to, to get our act together. And I think the good news, again, is that we're now having a conversation which is not about, you know, how do we reset or how do we rebalance? Or It's really a conversation about, okay, look, this is, this is a very, very serious long-term competition. Now let's talk about how we need to, how we need to prosecute it. Yeah. So given that sort of complexity and maybe the shrinking might not be the right word, but as you start to to remove some of those asymmetrical dependencies, right? The the byproduct of that is is sort of the the availability zones are sort of shrinking for resources, for knowledge, for capital, all that. What does that mean from sort of an investment perspective? And how are folks then thinking about the market? And as little as now, when we talk about sort of up and selling, we're even shrinking what, we, what we're looking at globally on like TAM and customers. And then you're also thinking about where's capital coming from. There's all of this additional complexity that now comes down into maybe a non-defense, non-national security capital allocator. How are they thinking about it? And then in turn, does that make it harder for companies to go fundraising the next 24, 48 what do we think that kind of looks like? Softball well, questions only today. So um, to, to use a, a phrase that I think we invoked before, it, uh, it, might, be, it might be complicated. Um, I think it also might depend. Look, so maybe, maybe a couple of, of, of observations around that question. So the first is when you, I think, look throughout history, there's a, a natural American tendency coming out of you know, the, the period of you know, the 1990s when the expectation was that we had entered this new uh, enduring era of cooperation and peace to suddenly find ourselves really, I think, distraught by the fact that actually the world didn't turn out that way. There are a few things that probably more disorienting and, and depressing than when it turns out that irreversible progress is actually not irreversible. And uh, that we're, we're back into a world where we have to think about some of these really kind of horrific and potentially apocalyptic outcomes, right? Great power war is something that I think a lot of people had hoped that we could just consign to, uh, consign to the ash heap of history. 
not something that we really actually would be having to seriously contemplate and then to think about, well, how do we, how do we deter it? Um, and if deterrence fails, then how do we prevail in it? Um, is it possible to prevail? And then you add in some of the, the disruptive new technologies, you know, whether that's artificial intelligence or synthetic biology or cyber. And uh, these are really serious and, and very scary conversations that we now need to have. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, the landscape that we're, we're facing is um, looking ahead as dangerous, maybe in, in some respects geopolitically and technologically more dangerous uh, than the Cold War for reasons we can talk about. Um, I actually tend to think that there were uh, structural reasons that helped keep the Cold War from going hot. And unfortunately, I think many of those factors are probably going to be absent yeah. for the period that we are, uh, that we're now in. So all that is, is pretty daunting. Yeah. Um, and, and we're not going to get through it by denying it or ignoring it, brushing it away. Flip side of, of all of this, however, um, which I think is also something that we can draw from history, same time that, you know, that imagination for tragedy, the recognition that there can be really, really bad outcomes here um, if we get these things wrong, is that great power competition has also been a, an extraordinary spur to technological progress, ingenuity. We would not have gone to the moon. We would not have had the internet. We would not geopolitically uh, have done things like NATO or the Marshall Plan or European reconciliation and, and economic integration absent the spur of the Cold War. Right? So geopolitics is not just something which is a destructive force or a dangerous force. And by the way, it can be those things. It has been those things. It can also create opportunity. It can also impel people to be better to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do on the, the positive side of the ledger. So I think before we talk about what does it mean for markets and what does it mean for company X and TAM and you know, all of that, this larger context is also just important to, 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 to put out there. Look, I think that what we're seeing already is that markets are uh, adjusting to some of these new realities. Uh, governments are putting in place policies to try to accelerate some of these changes or shape them. We're seeing uh, that this is creating tremendous opportunity for some countries. You know, the shift of supply chains to places uh, like India and Vietnam, the China plus one approach, the fact that I think that there is going to inevitably be more manufacturing um, that takes <clears throat> place in the United States uh, and in the West even if it's going to be in some cases at higher cost, but that's the security premium that the customers, that governments, uh, that companies are going to are going to say, well, look, you know, we, we we just have to accept, and that comes back to just in case rather than rather than just in time. So, I think that we can see that there's going to be opportunities. That I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but that there's going to be opportunities as well as risks. You know, if if you had said, I think at the beginning of the 1970s, that there's going to be a transformation in how global manufacturing takes place. And some of this is going to have to do with um, an oil shock. And some of this is going to have to do with the shift in supply chains. And some of this is going to have to do with opportunities because barriers to trade are going to come down. I mean, you know, it, it's going to be a reworking of the world. 
the consequences of some of those things were were actually incredibly devastating. You know, just go to Youngstown, Ohio, go to places that really got shattered uh, by that transformation. But then you also have parts of the world that were lifted out of poverty. You have kind of consumer prosperity and consumer goods. So it's going to be different. That's what, you know, wearing a, a kind of a historian perspective, you, you, you have to recognize as an investor, the question is, okay, try to understand wh where is the puck going? What are some of the fundamental trends? And then try to be thoughtful about them. Yeah. So two last questions. First, maybe it's a little squishy, but I'm just curious. So as you look out over the next 24, pessimistic or optimistic? 24 hours? Months. Yeah, months. hours, yeah. <laughs> 24 months, right? We've got, talked all about all this complexity, sort of politics aside, we're in a re-election, which is going to be like a pretty spicy, maybe Pyrrhic sort of re-election process, the way we keep pushing everybody to polar extremes. And then we're doing all that in the face of a bunch of weird sort of headwinds that maybe society hasn't had to exercise their muscles against in quite some time. Um, yeah. What's your sort of outlook there? So I'll, t I'll tell you what I'm optimistic about and I'll tell you what I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about. So what I'm optimistic about is that for all of the, the challenges that exist across the United States, and we know them, when I, I see just the extraordinary sources of strength that exist, I, I think, across the, the country that take so many different forms, right? The, the amazing innovation, the entrepreneurship that you see, the fact that people you know, create, take risks and create amazing companies. When you see um, and you spend time with young people at university and the things that they want to do, their idealism and their uh, patriotism. When I'm not uh, in my day job, I'm privileged to also be in the Navy Reserve. And when I look at the state of the sailors, soldiers, airmen, Marines, guardians um, of our military, it just fills you with so much confidence about the tremendous strength that we have as a society. And I think that in many respects, the geopolitics that we're facing, as challenging as they are, um, also, you, you see the opportunities that they create. The demand for American leadership in the world, the desire of countries to be partners with the United States, even as they're frustrated with us and they have long sets of complaints, the indispensability of the U.S. Yeah. Um, in every region of the world that is important for our national security creates enormous opportunity for the U.S., so the strength of the private sector, the, um, the character and caliber of so many of our fellow citizens, and a geopolitical map that is actually, in, in some respects, as challenging as it is, also uh, incredibly favorable to the U.S. position, U.S. leadership. Those are all reasons, I think, for us to be hopeful. Here's what worries me. Yep. First, our, our, our politics are infuriating on so many different levels. And we have between political uh, situation and obviously, you know, a kind of media and social media situation, all the incentives are for us to be tearing each other uh, down and tearing ourselves apart and talking about, you know, how disastrously bad 
not only the situation is, but how we as, as Americans are to each other. That's not a great scene. And that is going to be a, a spectacle over um, certainly the next 12 months and beyond that does not fill me w- with a lot of excitement. But we're, we're just going to have to get through it. Two, you know, we, we began by talking about this bipartisan recognition about some of the challenges that we face. And we do talk a lot about how serious, for example, the, the China challenge is. At the same time, what is, strikes me is that when it requires doing things that are politically painful or difficult, that political will suddenly seems to, to ebb a bit. So, you know, we can talk about how serious the, the challenge is, uh, the geopolitical challenge from the CCP. But then when it becomes a conversation about, well, okay, let's really make wrenching reforms to our military or um, something like immigration reform or something like a trade policy. Suddenly, there's a lot. It's there's a lot less will to do things, and so, in a strange way, as much as our rhetoric now is all about pounding the table, about how serious the threat is, I don't actually see it translating. And then the last thing, and I guess this is probably the the manifestation, which is the the wolf closest to the sled. I I really, and this is where where you come in, Tyler. I mean, I I really have a lot of concerns just about the state of our defense industrial base. And I think that we're we're now having a different conversation about our defense industrial base as a result of of the war in Ukraine, as a result of uh, some of the things that we're we're seeing in the Indo-Pacific. But I think that we are still a long way away from undertaking the kinds of changes that are pretty urgent in order to, to be able to establish the deterrence um, that we, we badly need. And time, I fear, is, is not on our side uh, in this respect. So once again, another manifestation of we, we're, we're kind of we're talking the talk about this world that we live in now. I'm not sure that we're, we're walking the walk. Yeah. So in the spirit of, of deeds, not words, you're king for a day? You've got your sort of magic wand. You can change one thing. You don't have to caveat it. Like, it'll change. It'll stick. Your intended outcome is realized. What do you change and why? Just one day. I only get 24 hours. 24 hours of change can last forever. All right. So the first thing to say is, I guess, as a, as a um, lower D Democrat, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of monarchy or authoritarianism. So I, I'm a big believer in actually trying to create consensus across society. And that usually takes more than 24 hours. Yeah. So I, I, on principle, object uh, <laughs> to the, the premise. That being said, Love it. as long as I've got the magic wand, <laughs> while, I, I'm here. <laughs> while I'm here, it would be irresponsible for me to, to dispose of it. I would say two things. One is very, very concrete and tactical. The other is more conceptual. On, on the, the purely tactical side, as I said, I think that we're on a decent trajectory in terms of strengthening our alliances and partnerships in the key parts of the world, in Indo-Pacific for sure. I think that we're you know, starting to, to do a lot of things you know, here at home with respect to some of the sensitive technologies. I think that our pri- private sector is actually um, now increasingly on a, a better trajectory 
all these things can be accelerated. But the the area where I, I worry the most is just pure hard power in in the Western Pacific. Um, so I get my magic wand. I would say first thing that we just have a lot more, particularly long range fires. Uh, my my friend uh, Chris Bros would say large numbers of small things in the Western Pacific as quickly as possible, um, precisely because we want to try to do everything we can to create a balance of power that would deter a conflict there. And the balance for the last 20 years has been heading in one direction, which is moving out of balance. It's first. Look, the second is the deeper and more conceptual point, which is no country achieves greatness by having its population uh, tearing each other to pieces. I've spent a lot of time in the first part of my career in the Middle East, in places where you have these kind of sectarian politics, where people, you know, political leaders get power and keep power by pitting, you know, some um, group that they uh, describe themselves as the defenders uh, of against other groups. And the result is, well, you go to a place like Beirut and you discover that you have, you know, the garbage doesn't get picked up on the street. The country is bankrupt. It's just a a disaster. We can't in the long run afford to have that kind of sectarian politics. You know, the, the irony, we look back 20 years ago, we we went to the Middle East and the idea was we we're going to bring democracy to the Middle East. Sometimes it feels like instead we managed to bring the Middle the East exporting. into our democracy. Yep. So we got to yeah. find some way to transcend that kind of sectarian politics. Yeah. And so it, what I guess I would do with my magic wand would be to hopefully help people see what actually uh, is the result if we go down this path if you push this to its logical conclusion. And I think that the result is, is, what what does that leave a society looking like? What is that going to leave us looking like? And to recognize that we're a big, complicated, uh, diverse country full of people with different opinions, that's fine. We're going to argue about everything under the sun. The flip side is, we also live in a world where we face real adversaries, real competitors, real enemies who don't particularly care about any of these divisions, except to the extent that they can weaponize them to turn us against each other. So we, I think that we're in reasonably good shape to be able to compete in this century against the external challenges that we face. I think we're actually in, in really good position in a lot of ways. The only force that can defeat the United States are Americans themselves. Like we can do that to ourselves. And I think we've got a preview from some of the experiences that we had earlier in the century about what we should not be like. So I'll try to use my magic wand, which I think at this point is probably just this microphone to try to appeal to people to say, look, let's, let's not go in that direction. We can do better than that. Like, and I will say, you know, even as we went through this whole conversation and we talked about sort of all of these different geopolitical complexities, the, the how trying sort of the times may seem, the ability to not only sort of see the goodness and the, 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 the unique greatness that sort of makes America sort of what it is, but to not lose sight of that, even though 
for folks that are sort of like in the day to day, it might seem like there really is sort of no way forward. So, well, so so one thing that you find, and this is also an, a funny feature of our politics today, is you can take any part of American society, and you will find people who will be very quick to tell you, "This is ter- This is a disaster. This is this is evil. This is horrible." Okay, you talk about big tech, you talk about you talk about Wall Street, uh, you talk about Washington, you talk about our universities, our elite universities, and all of these things, I, I would even say Wall Street included, can come in for very legitimate criticisms. The flip side is any of, of these centers of American influence, American power, uh, our competitors would happily take them in a heartbeat if they could have them for their as as their own absolutely so i think that the appropriate approach is to say well look rather than than demonizing the criticism is legitimate let's talk about how we make things better let's talk about okay so you know this institution or this sector it has problems so what can we do about them and let's keep in mind that at the end of the day, we're all kind of stuck in this country together. So we want to try to be building, building ourselves up rather than tearing ourselves down. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's just from my very, very small corner, how I, I guess I would look at it. And, but from, I think, a geopolitical standpoint, when you say, okay, well, we are in a competitive world where we face these very, very significant challenges that we we have to face squarely. I guess my, my last hope would be that as we see more clearly the nature of the challenges that we're confronted with, that it can impel us to be better to each other. And again, that's not to say to ignore the problems within our own society. On the contrary, it actually should impel us to confront those challenges to, and to, to try to solve those problems. But it also is to recognize that we ultimately have to we have to build ourselves up, not tear ourselves uh, tear ourselves down. No, I love it. I think that is that is the right message to sort of wrap this on. Is hey, the, the power to sort of continue to build and expand and retain and repair American sort of exceptionalism lies with the greatness that is America. That is the individual. not locked away in an institution or in some brick and mortar building. I think that's an awesome way to tie this together. And with that, my man, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today. I think this was uh, not only an awesome conversation, I think I learn every time that I get to sit with you and uh, I'm continually amazed by your ability to distill very, very large, complex topics down into bite-sized consumables. So thank you for sharing some of that with us today. That uh, was uh, was a, a pleasure. I'm not sure how much got distilled and how much of it was bite-sized versus, you know, probably causing some people to choke on their uh, their, their commute into work. But, um, but it was great fun. So thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Cheers. All right. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some undersea cloud today. Going to get a little a little weird with it. So for those of you who haven't seen, uh, link will be in the show notes, I think. I don't really know. U.S. Navy sort of modernizing undersea fleet with cloud computing. They're saying AI because everyone says AI right now. But pretty interesting from the Sub Warfare Federated Tactical System, SWIFTS would be interested to sort of hear your take on 
on the approach and sort of the broader implications, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the, the, the lead is a little bit buried in this one. And the interesting thing is, is less, dare I say, not the cloud um, and some other stuff. So take it away, brother. Yeah, I think like a lot of articles, you, you got to throw cloud and AI in there somewhere, just to get people's attention. But look, the exciting part is not the cloud. Okay, that's just like computer and store. Awesome. I'm great. I'm glad we have it 10 years later. Like a knife um, to my heart when you're saying the exciting part's not the cloud. It's my <laughs> whole identity. Yeah, well, no, in this way, the cool part is the part that they kind of buried there, which is the federated weapon system aspect of it. You know, the subfleet has been plagued for years, like, hey, our, our electronic warfare doesn't talk to our sonar, and we have a dude sitting there, like, filling in spreadsheets. You know, the fact that they're actually federating the weapon systems, actually integrating uh, the sensors, yes, cloud enables that, but the exciting part is the fact that they're taking a new look at how they're actually going to uh, make, make it all work. And so I love it. I, I think it's fantastic. But I do like how the article, of course, is it's all AI and cloud. It's like, oh, come on. That's not, does it that's give not you, Does it give you hope, especially sort of given your background from sort of DIU, some of the Intel side before that, and then major sort of software factory program office in that KR standpoint, does it give you hope for future procurement starting to bake in interoperability i know we oft talk about interoperability like with partners and allies but the running joke is like you know the firing actual system inside a a major platform isn't even interoperable and requires modularity so how do we think about building sort of like next gen platforms with this yeah i think i'm not sure if interoperability is the right word i think what we really need to be baking into contracts and baking into every web system is, is adaptability because you never know what's going to go first. Is is the hardware going to improve? Is the sensor going to improve? Is you know the weapon system going to improve? You don't know the time cycles of each one. So what's yeah. really more important is that each one is adaptable versus predefining interoperability. Because then as soon as one changes, you break the whole system. And so uh, again, cloud helps you get there. Uh, we'll see what happens. Like it. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird.